Welcome to the Third Growth Option Podcast, where we talk with business leaders and innovators hungry to drive growth that can be faster than internal organic growth and less risky than acquisition. Your moderator is Bernal Dunkerspuller, Chief Sherpa and CEO at Realign, who has led private equity-owned distributors through turnarounds and growth. With battle-proven leaders from all frontiers, we want to provoke thinking about business growth beyond conventional wisdom and binary choices. Hey, I'm Ben Out talking with Jay Steinfeld today, founder and former CEO of Blinds.com, which he sold to Home Depot some years ago, and an author of an amazing book that's coming out Thanksgiving 2021, Lead from the Core. Welcome to Third Growth Option Podcast, Jay. Ben thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm uh, really looking forward to this. So the Third Growth Option podcast is about growth stories and growth approaches that business leaders you know, want to share and, and others want to learn about. And you have a great story. And you've articulated these four principles, the, the four E's that we're going to get to in, in sort of this, after we talk about the business story itself a little bit. And, you know, the iconic startup story usually starts in a garage. And, and what a one of the things I love about your story is that you started in a van before you even got to the garage and ultimately sold to Home Depot. Just give us a little teaser or flyover of those, you know, the big milestones from, from the van to, to selling to Home Depot. Happy to do that. My wife started in the window covering business in 1987. I had been fired from my job as a vice president of finance of Meineke Discount Muffler. So I was doing some consulting, hated it. And decided, hey, why not? I'm a CPA. Why not sell blinds? So I opened up a second store. And what we did was go to people's homes in a van and help them choose the best window coverings for their house. And that was a really good business. That was a long time ago. But it was a grueling business. We'd be working seven days a week, early in the morning, come home late at night, doing maybe three or four appointments a day. In 1993, I hear about something called the internet, the World Wide Web. So I wasn't sure what it was, decided to try it out, just a little experiment. And I launched a website in 1993. And then 1994, Amazon launches and they're selling books online and thought, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's sell blinds online. Of course, everybody said it was stupid. Nobody's going to measure and install their own blinds. But they did, slowly but surely. And over time, we became a formidable force, such that we were beating Amazon, beating all the big boxes, really beating everybody. We were the number one online retailer of blinds in the world. About seven years ago, in 2014, Home Depot bought us, and I stayed on for about almost seven years working with Home Depot and maintaining my CEO role there. And last year, I decided to give back, writing the book, teaching in the business school at Rice, serving on five boards. So you started Blinds.com before Amazon started? Well, not exactly. I went online in 1993, but the first okay. website was just a site to show off the blind store called Laura's right. Draperies. There was yeah. no e-commerce. And it cost $1,500. But once I saw that you could sell books 
And it occurred to me that you can sell things online, of all things. That's when I decided for $3,000 in 1996, a couple of years after Amazon, to try to sell blinds. That at first sight wasn't called blinds.com. We wanted to make buying blinds and shades a no-brainer. So we called it nobrainerblinds.com. From there, we then bought the, the domain name blinds.com and made it what it is today. Got you. And uh, whether it was six months before or two years later, the point is it was very early days. I mean, I don't think I wrote my first email until 1995. Before that, it was some sort of you know intranet, you know intercompany email thing, but it wasn't a. So you were there in the early days. Very early, there was no broadband. All the companies that you know about today, Google, Facebook, there was nothing called social media at the time. It was very early, and it was one of, one of the things that I that I learned about myself though was that it was a small experiment. It wasn't a big experiment. There was very low. There was downside risk was minimal. But I can't even say that the upside potential was great because I had no idea what it was. All I knew was, why not? Why not give it a shot? I grew up in Germany, and, and, and we like to say the difference between Americans and Europeans is that Europeans always ask why, and Americans ask why not. <laughs> so you asked why not, and I think oftentimes that's a, that, that's a good question to ask. Are there certain milestones that sort of jump out, you know, in that journey between spending 3000 bucks and, hey, let's, let's make it into an e-commerce store and selling it to, to Home Depot, uh, you know, huge, I don't know, $80, $100 billion revenue publicly traded company. Were there a couple other stepping stones that you think of fondly or maybe not so fondly? Well, there's, there's definitely great things that happened and terrible things that happened. The worst thing that happened is right after, just about a year after we launched, my wife, whom I'd been married to for 26 years, got cancer and she passed away. So that was a terrible situation for me and my three children. I had to decide, what's next? What am I going to do? Should I maintain the business? How am I going to maintain my positivity on life? I'm a single dad, so... That was definitely the most tragic situation, which I had to overcome. On a more positive level, there were acquisitions that we made along the way. And the first one was right at the beginning, where we bought a company in St. Augustine, Florida. And that gave me some technology and some additional revenue and critical mass to be able to do things that on my own I was not able to do. And once I did that, I could then hire people that were much more competent than I was and more skilled at things like marketing, IT, coding, things like that. Even how to run a call center, which I had no experience doing whatsoever. In fact, when I started, I had no experience at anything, which I think is a trait that is a positive one because I had no bad habits either. Right. <laughs> But I think one thing, being a CPA, teaches you that is, you know, both good and bad is, you know, I mean, the good is that it allows you to see the world in black and white, right? Credits and debits. But you've sort of balanced that by also saying the world isn't black and white. And there's a whole lot of things I know nothing about. And I need 
other input? Well, it was black and white that I knew nothing. <laughs> I knew that. As a CPA and a, and a vice president, you know, I think you knew something. <laughs> no, I really, yeah, I, I knew accounting. I knew that. But what I didn't know was how to run a business. And I had to learn that. And I had to do it slowly and get best practices from other people. So I was very observant. That was one thing I was. I was observant. I was curious. I was anxious to learn. I was willing to take some chances with myself and to be experimental in how I would be able to evolve. And with the death of my wife, I became much more introspective and honest about how bad I was at certain things and how good I was at others. And to be able to assess those things honestly gave me a foundation to determine where I did need to learn more and where I could never learn and be able to then hire the people necessary to do what I would never be able to do. So in the last few years, you've stepped aside from, when did you stop being CEO of the then Home Depot-owned company? May 2020. May 2020. Okay. So we're airing this Thanksgiving 2021, and you've been writing the book that is coming out November 30th? Yes, but I've been writing the book for four years. This is not something that just occurred to me to do now that I had nothing to do. This has been a painstakingly uh, grueling situation where for, for four years I would be logging in all the stories that I felt would be amusing, entertaining, and also provide insight on how business really works from the inside. Because remember, I started with nothing, just an idea, and built it to hundreds of millions of dollars. And to be able to take a company that could be then integrated into, at the time, an $80 billion company, and now they're doing about $130 billion. And to see that the company is still integrated and integrated not only into the website, but into over 2,000 stores. That's very gratifying. And to see my people flourishing without me, even more so. So before we dig in a little bit on the, the, the four E's from your book, I want to, you know, you, you, you and I had talked about, hey, let's air this Thanksgiving weekend. And one of the reasons is the words generosity and grace are meaningful to not only this time of year, but to you personally. Talk, talk a little bit about those concepts. Absolutely. People think that the way you make money is to spend as little as possible and see what you can get away with. I think it's the opposite. Yes, you have to be smart with how you spend money. You have to think about return on investment for sure. But when it comes to people, I think you give them as much as you can that still makes sense for the business. Now, that doesn't mean you give them as much money as you can, but you do want to pay them fairly. What you want to do is give them the opportunity to be themselves. You want to give them the opportunity to express themselves. Give them the opportunity to develop and to develop others, to become a leader. When you provide people the tools and the resources to become better than what they ever believe possible, then they will accomplish more than you even believe they could do. And that's what I mean by generosity, providing an environment and resources to flourish. And when people are doing that, 
and getting better and evolving and helping other people evolve as well, then you have a business that's taking off that becomes almost autonomous excellence, where you personally as leader don't need to do too much, but maintain that environment and make sure that the people who are not taking advantage of it are no longer in the, in the organization because you need people who are always going to want to improve and to be part of an environment that is growing and evolving. And that's, that's autonomous excellence as far as I'm concerned. That's how you become generous by helping people become better than they believe possible. First of all, I, I love the term. What did you call it? Authentic? Autonomous excellence, where the company just gets better and better automatically. Autonomous excellence. It's like a car is self-driving. Well, if right. you can create a company that is self-evolving, then you step out of the way and allow people to become their authentic selves and to express themselves and offer ideas and feel like they are vested in the future because they see the, the vision that we want to create, the mission that we have, our purpose, and everybody is excited about being there. If you felt like you were being fairly compensated, why would you ever leave? And at Blinds.com, we had extremely low turnover. And that's why we could continue investing in people. And when you don't invest in people, what's the opposite going to happen? They're going to get bored. They're going to feel stagnant. They're not growing. And they're going to leave. And then you're going to think, well, I shouldn't be investing in people because they're just going to leave. Well, the reason they're leaving is because you're not investing in them. So invest in your people. Be as generous as you can be. And just watch what happens. So the four E's are evolve continuously experiment without fear, express yourself, and enjoy the ride. And you shared those thoughts, you know, sort of little teasers on, on LinkedIn, which is actually how you and I got connected because I, I saw the posts and I was like, hmm, well, there's something to those four concepts and, and, and I want to learn more about it. And so I, I appreciate you answering and replying to me. And, you know, here, here we're doing a podcast together. You know, when you said earlier about your wife's cancer and, you know, that terrible, I don't have the words to describe what you must have gone through at that moment in life, then being, becoming, losing your wife, becoming a single father of, of three. But to me, turning a tragedy, a horrible loss into something, you know, certainly on the business side that became positive. It's a large part of the, your story and, and of these four E's, isn't it? It is, but I, I think it, it's important to clarify one thing that you said. I didn't turn it into something other than a tragedy. It's still yeah. a tragedy. I'm still sad. And for those people who have lost somebody to say, well, get over it. That's right. the way life is. Well, I'm sorry. It's not acceptable not to be sad. It's been 20 years and I'm still sad, but I'm also happy. It's the paradox of being sad about life's miseries and being happy about all the successes that you have. I believe both can exist simultaneously. So I think that's an important thing. And paradox is an important part of leadership to understand there is no reconciliation of things, that all these things exist together and your job is to be able to accept them both. For instance, 
maintaining your vision, your long-term vision, yet making sure you do everything that has to be done today. Going as fast as you can, but as slow as, as, slow as, as you can reasonably and conservatively not be too risky about that speed. There's all sorts of things like that. But as far as the four E's are concerned, this is something that I wasn't conscious of this when I started. It was only through that introspection that came after my wife died, Naomi, that it even occurred to me that I needed to understand myself better. And when I did look, I found that it was about these little experiments that I was doing and how I wanted to evolve constantly. And when I was conscious of it, and we were as a team conscious that we were going to evolve and experiment and that people would have a voice, that would be really fun because we would achieve things that were consequential and significant. And to me, it's not about the free food and foosball and ping pong tables, which we have. It's really about doing consequential work. And when you, when you work really hard, that's super fun to do things that people didn't even believe you could do. And it was that culture that was the clincher when Home Depot bought us. They first were attracted to our sales. They loved our market share. They loved what we were doing. And they wanted that volume for themselves. But then they thought, how did they do this? Was it their technology? Was it their marketing people? When they really found out what the core of that was, it was the four E's. It was this culture that this small little group of people, we had about a, 175 people doing 115 million at the time. How did we do this with virtually no money? It was because every day we were evolving and helping each other evolve, helping the customer evolve, helping the business evolve every single day throughout the day. My definition of success is about being in the process of getting better and helping other people get better at the same time. So that if you can get better or I can help somebody else get better, that's success. And you could actually do that multiple times during the day. So you can be successful throughout the day as you get just a little bit better at just one little thing. And if everybody is doing that, well, there's that enjoying the ride again because we're all supporting each other and we're all carrying each other and ensuring that we're focused on becoming the best we can be. I love that definition of success as you're successful if you're getting better, if you're improving, if you're learning from a mistake that you made, you know, five minutes ago or five years ago. Another great thing about that, and I, I'm glad you, you, you can appreciate that because what happens is people get disappointed, anguished when they find out that they're bad at something or that the business has a weakness. On the other hand, you can say, wow, I'm really bad at that. So look how much I can get better. <laughs> or look how much time I can save if I ask somebody else to do it instead. <laughs> the more things that are wrong, the more happier you can be because you know you've got more things to improve on. You'll never run out of things that you can improve on. <laughs> Hallelujah. That is true. And this notion of, 
you know, expressing yourself is something that I, I thought about a lot, you know, in recent years. I'm, you know, 57 now. And, and I would say in my, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, I was, and I think many people in those decades of our lives are maybe too focused on fitting in and, you know, I am working for this kind of company, so I have to act that kind of way. And expressing yourself is sort of, you know, paradoxical, and another word you used earlier that I love, to, you know, sort of the opposite of, of focusing on fitting in. That is true. One of the hard things about it, though, is it sounds very enlightened. I know that. But when you really think about it, how often do you really have the chance to express yourself? You're used to just being, just doing what you're told to do. And if you do what you're told, you get a raise. Great. All I want you to do is this checklist, and I want you to do it by this time. Run through your list, you do it, you get a little raise. You're never said, oh, I want you to do this, but I want to think of other things. I want you to think of other things too. And don't just do what I say. I want you to come up with your own things. That's a lot of pressure. That means you want me to come up with things too? Whoa, now you want me to think. <laughs> now you raise the stakes. What are you doing? Yeah, you're about? really raising the stakes. <laughs> you know, it's funny. My former boss and great mentor of mine, Gary Friedman, who used to be the number two guy at, at Williams-Sonoma and Pot when I was a buyer at Pottery Barn. And now, of course, he is the man at RH, uh, Restoration Hardware. You know, he, he always said to us, I expect you to bring your opinions to work, which is, you know, had to be stressed certainly in in, in those days, because people, you know, they were they were it was a sizable. It was you know we were probably shy of a billion dollar. I think it, I don't know six hundred million, eight hundred million dollar revenue publicly traded company at the time. There was a good good amount of yes men and yes women around, and and he told all of us. I'm asking for your opinion. If, if you're not bringing your opinion to work, what am I paying you for? <laughs> exactly. It's still hard to do. Even though I said that constantly, and it was one of our core values, express yourself. You go through life trained not to do that. You don't right. disagree with your teachers. You don't disagree with your parents. You don't disagree with your boss. You don't do any of these things publicly. So it's very hard to get used to the, the safety of being able to do that. And then you, you disagree with a peer, and then you make them feel bad. Or what if you disagree and people disagree with your disagreement? Then you feel stupid. And no one wants to feel stupid either. So there are reasons for not speaking up. But you're never going to de develop all the data that you need to make the best decisions unless you get the people who are close to the action, who are close to the customer, who are actually doing the work to be able to say, you know, this is not a really smart thing to do, or I've got a better way to do this, or we thought this was good, but the customers don't. If you want to make better decisions, you need more data, and you've got to get the data from people. And that gets into even diversity of opinion. So you hire a diverse workforce, you get diverse opinions. Again, being able to make the best decisions. On the you know, diversity of thought and, and expressing yourself, I'll share a pet peeve with you. There's a term out there, you know, sort of a business phrase 
cultural fit. Oh yeah, we hire for cultural fit. And I think that's that's a completely backwards wrong term. I think we should hire for cultural contribution. I don't care if you fit culturally as long as you contribute to the culture that is there. Is that part of your thought process or or am I off off the ranch here? Well, everybody's got their own opinions. My opinion is that you you should hire for cultural fit, but we might be thinking about cultural fit in a different way. So if our culture, our four E's to experiment without fear, to evolve continuously, to express yourself, and to enjoy the ride, if you don't do that, then you're not a cultural fit. And we do try to hire people who already, in their personal lives, work to improve themselves in some way, such as I'm taking cooking lessons, I'm taking flying lessons, I'm taking, I'm working with a psychologist to be a better parent so I can be more patient. When people can show that in their personal lives, they're already trying to get better or they're willing to explore, say, I'm going to go to Cambodia with $50 in a backpack. To me, that's, to some people, they may think, well, that seems kind of silly. You need a plan. Well, a person who's willing to go without a plan and who's willing to improve themselves already in their personal lives is exactly the type of people that we want. And one of my favorite questions to ask is, tell me about some things you're doing right now in your personal life to get better. And if they don't have any, they're not going to get hired because we don't want people to get converted into thinking, oh, I guess it's okay. I guess I'm going to have to evolve. No, we want people who are thrilled with evolving, who want to do it and who are in an environment that gives them that freedom and safety to do so. That makes perfect sense. And I can totally go along with your, with your description of cultural fit. We kind of challenged each other a little bit there earlier, so that's good. And, you know, you maybe didn't expect me to agree with you on it, but I do. The way in which you described it makes perfect sense. Well, you're, you're happy to disagree because if I want you to express yourself and you don't, then I don't like that. That's right. Exactly. And I might even be able to hone my own definition of expressing to a different level because of your disagreement. So I am open to changing what I believe to be true based on your input, and I want to hear it. And if that's yeah. the way you think about when, as a leader with your people, and they believe, yeah, I really believe this is right, but give me some data that might change my mind and right. know that I'm open to it. Even if I don't change it, I at least wanted to hear it. And that's what people want to know, that they've got a voice and that they're being heard and that they're being respected. When you describe cultural fit, you're describing people that are expressing and evolving and, and contri- you know, I use the word contr- contributing to the culture. That is contributing and bringing new ideas into the fold, into the group is part of your definition of cultural fit, which is why I'm agreeing with your definition. Great. Jay, tell me, sort of looking at the last few decades from, you know, that scrappy start of, you know, starting it in a van before it even went to a garage, then selling it to Home Depot, is is there something you wish you had learned much earlier or that you wish you could at least impart on others going through similar startups or high growth 
times as, as you have. And you've shared a lot of them already, but is there something else? I'd say the key thing is to be able to deal with ambiguity better. I didn't need to know the right answer from the beginning because you can't possibly know the right answer. And what so many business people believe to be true is that you can research something and use a spreadsheet and determine with facts exactly the way the path is going to be. But that's so untrue. You don't really know. And until you go out into the wild, meaning start your business and start selling your service or product to customers, real customers, you'll never know. And to be able to deal with the ambiguity of not knowing is a really hard thing to do. But I wish I had known that earlier because then I wouldn't have believed that I had to be so hard on myself. And I could have given myself and the people who work for me more grace to be able to experiment and not be right every time. And if they weren't 100% right and they were only 98% right, then maybe I could give them that freedom and be able to overlook something that really didn't make any difference. And I would do the same thing for myself to say, okay, I I got that wrong. That's okay. Instead of, I know I'm going to get most of the things I'm going to do wrong. So let's just get through it fast. Right. (laughs) Jay, if folks wanted to reach out to you one-on-one, what is the best way to reach you? There's a bunch of ways. I think the best is in my website, jsteinfeld.com. There's an email address there. Or just connect with me on LinkedIn. That's an easy way. And I, I look at that throughout the week, sometimes multiple times during the day, depending on what I'm posting. A lot of people communicate with me on LinkedIn. But the website is also a place where you can learn about the four E's and hear some of the other articles that I've written. I've written over 100 articles for Inc.com and CBS Market Watch. And a lot of the events that I'm, where I'm speaking, you can see where I'm speaking and maybe connect with me that way. And of course, there's a link to buy the book, which is great. Well, I learned a new term today, autonomous excellence. I like that. I like your definition of success is means getting better. And I like your advice to deal with ambiguity better. So I've learned a lot today, and I want to thank you for taking the time. I appreciate you having me, Benno. It's been fun. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jay. Hey, and if uh, folks wanted to explore other growth topics, you can find me on our website, realignforresults.com, or just email Benno, B-E-N-N-O, at realignforresults.com. Thanks for listening, and keep growing. You can listen to more episodes on Apple, Spotify, or Google. We would love for you to subscribe, rate, and review it. Share it with your friends or colleagues if you enjoyed the content. Always growing.